Okay, welcome to the Scavengeology Podcast. This is Episode 7, The Venturesome Virginia Frontiersman, Part 1. The date is August 3rd, 1752, in Augusta County, Virginia. As the 45-year-old frontiersman began his careful descent along the steep western slope of the long, flat mountain he had climbed earlier that morning, he could faintly make out rays of daylight ahead, a sure sign of a clearing in the forest, as dark forests turned to bright meadows in the foothills below. Being a veteran long hunter, Joseph Swope immediately recognized the old clearings ahead as the work of generations of hunting bands of Indians, possibly spanning back to the earlier mound-building cultures, and it heightened his senses. He'd encountered them many times before, and they were especially prominent in this fertile limestone valley which he had first entered yesterday, camping under the roof of a cave. Many of the first white adventurers over the Blue Ridge were surprised to see cleared valleys of fields and meadows where it was assumed that would lie nothing but trackless forest. So Joseph knew that cleared areas were indications of fertile ground and good water and plentiful food for pack horses. In short, good settlement potential, whether right, red, or white. In 1671, explorers Thomas Batt, Robert Fulham, and Thomas Wood were commissioned to explore the, quote, ebbing and flowing of the waters on the other side of the mountains, in order to the discovery of the South Sea. It wouldn't be until Lewis and Clark expedition, 130 or so years later, that the dis- disappointing news of there being no navigable or practical water route across the continent was finally put to rest. After crossing the Blue Ridge, the Bat Expedition discovered a large savanna, as prairies were called at the time. The Bat Expedition found likewise as they entered the southern end of the Greenbrier Valley. When the party reached the general vicinity of present-day Union, Monroe County, West Virginia, They found much of the land long ago cleared of timber in places, and with stony but fertile soils, some of the old fields grown up in weeds, locusts, and old corn stalks. They reached about the site of present-day Hinton, West Virginia, and the beginning of West Virginia's New River Gorge, where at first they thought the westerly course of the water, combined with sunlight reflecting on the water in the distance, was the beginnings of the Pacific Ocean. Joseph Swope was acutely aware that these old clearings and the fertile areas of the valley, besides being great indicators of good land, also warned of potential danger, and Joseph hadn't survived as long as he had by being reckless. As these thoughts flowed through his mind, as often they did when he walked by himself through the woods in complete silence, he thought about the turkey he had just shot minutes before, and it began to give him an uneasy anxiety. A feeling of worry started to develop in the back of his mind. He unconsciously stepped more carefully, avoiding breaking even the smallest twig, yet he make a noise. He hadn't thought about it at the time, but from atop the mountain, surrounded on all sides by valleys, the sound surely carried far in many directions. Under his breath, or perhaps just in his mind, he cursed himself using some of his favorite tavern insults. How could he be so careless, and in this place of all places, of which he really knew nothing? He was going here blind. He hadn't thought of it, but he could have concealed his trail from the turkey and set yet another trap in which to spy and perhaps kill anyone investigating the shot. He'd done it before. It was a dirty trick, but when it comes to survival, fair didn't matter. But he hadn't done it. To make matters worse, he had virtually no idea who, if anyone, was within the general vicinity of isolated and completely uninhabited frontier. At times it was easy to get complacent, which was of course potentially deadly to the 18th century long hunter. His eyes instinctively began to dart back and forth, even more rapidly and concentrated than usual. He listened for the normal sounds he expected to hear in the woods, which had often served as an early warning indicator that trouble was near. Even as a child, Joseph Swope had never been able to sit still for extended periods. He had never wanted to waste his life as a farmer. He always preferred shooting, hunting, and trapping, and of course exploring, over the farming life. He came from a German immigrant family who valued the lifelong establishment of an efficient farm. Germans treasured farmland, as there never was much of it to go around in the old country. 
They tended to latch onto a farm here in the colony of Virginia or in Pennsylvania and stay and work at it until it became profitable. But that wasn't Joseph. He wasn't a wanderer, always pacing, even when home in his cabin. Every family seems to have at least one black sheep who refuses to do what's expected of him, and that was Joseph among the Swopes of Lehman. The Swopes hadn't been in the colonies for long, and even now Joseph could hardly be understood by many of his fellow Virginians, most of whom were Scotch-Irish. And to be sure, the name wasn't even Swope, but rather Schwab. But their heavy accents, poor spelling, and broken English somehow resulted in people calling them Swope, probably from the, swelling, the spelling Swab, S-W-A-B, and it stuck. And of course, there was no Germany per se at the time. Joseph's father, Joost, lived in the town of Lehman and the Duchy of Baden. This is where Joseph was born in 1707. Joseph's grandfather was the burgomaster of Lehman, which is basically a mayor. For instance, Joseph himself always carried this heavy German accent, which would have sounded something like, How do you do? My name is Joseph Zvob, and I'm headed across the mountains to look for came and adventure. You can see how Schwab would quickly turn into Swope. Joseph's father brought him and his siblings across the ocean by ship to the British colony of Pennsylvania. While Joseph was still a child, the family arrived at the port in Philadelphia and traveling by wagon to the upper Leacock Township of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, an area where they already had some friends and family nestled among the large German immigrant community in that area. Between 1727 and 1775, approximately 65,000 Germans, mostly from the Rhineland region, moved to Pennsylvania. There were many reasons that the Germans were migrating to Pennsylvania, but the primary one was that the same one that almost everyone who came to America had, to leave the socially stagnant, feudal, and bloody old world behind for the land of promise and opportunity. The German people had been devastated by the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century and the wars thereafter between German principalities and France. German immigrants generally arrived in Pennsylvania as family units, and they would write to each other, encouraging others to join them. There had never really been any new land available in Germany, or Europe in general, since the days of the Roman Empire. And even then, it took an army, or armies, to gain it, much less to hold it. In Pennsylvania, new land was just there for the taking. In Germany, small farms were cherished, and held by a family as long as possible. The idea of new land being up for grabs was too much to resist. In Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which was the epicenter of the creation and advancement of what became known as the American Long Rifle, Joseph became fascinated with the thriving Pennsylvania gunsmithing industry. It was spreading like wildfire through the local settlements to the west of Philadelphia as the newly arrived immigrants immediately realized the huge market for their skills. Like other German boys, Joseph had grown up shooting his father's Jaeger rifles. His father had two prized, finely decorated guns, one which had a smooth barrel and could fire lead shot for foul, and he had one with a rifled barrel for shooting an accurate solid ball. His uncle had one with rotating barrels, one for large game and one, for smooth, one smooth for foul. It was a fine piece, it was expensive too, and thus his uncle rarely used it except on special occasions. Germans had always been fascinated with firearms and combined with talented woodworkers, locksmiths, and blacksmiths had perfected a weapon all of their own, which served an entire profession of serious hunters in Germany, combining an accurate rifled barrel with a short overall length, convenient for reloading and ease of carrying on a hunt. In the new melting pot of America, German immigrants carried this knowledge and passion with them and combined it with the entrepreneurship and economic potential of new settlements and new land creating, by way of necessity, a new way of life and a new weapon, what would become the Pennsylvania rifle, later called the Kentucky rifle. It remains today a symbol of America itself for a number of reasons, westward expansion, manifest destiny, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the sheer size and wilderness of the vast North American continent. The German immigrants, of course, brought their expensive and shorter-barreled Jaegers with them to Pennsylvania, but there was an unanticipated problem from the very beginning, which rendered them less than reliable in the New World. The available gunpowder was extremely low quality, 
and the old country, they had access to the finest Swiss-made gunpowder, which made for wonderfully accurate shooting in the short-barreled German rifles. But the gunpowder in Pennsylvania was terrible compared to what they were used to. This poor gunpowder, some of which made, was made by local entrepreneurs using homemade concoctions mixed together in regional powder mills, wasn't creating sufficient velocity out of the short German barrels. The old, old world trained gunsmiths quickly adapted lengthening the barrels of their new builds and spending less attention to decoration, though still utilizing a basic German style of architecture. These early American rifles were very much akin to the Jaeger style from the old world and probably impossible to differentiate to some of the more basic Jaegers brought over from Germany. But the new trend developing was overall more subdued and functional than the treasured old expensive masterpieces. Some of the old world Jaegers were fabulously decorated with hunting scenes engraved on them, engraved stags, and so on. The new American pieces produced by the same talented German gunsmiths were basically all business, and many of them were Moravian artists, centered in the early areas of Bethlehem and Christian Springs, Pennsylvania, as well as Old Salem down in North Carolina. In the American colonies, hunting wasn't necessarily a recreational activity for the wealthy, or even a make-work profession, but rather a method of survival for the poor and wealthy alike, living a dangerous and unpredictable life on the fringes of the eastern frontier. Even more importantly, hunting using firearms was the primary tool of survival in the deadly game of cat and mouse being played in the border regions where Indians hunted and American colonists weren't supposed to go. It was a weapon of guerrilla warfare used by both sides, as well as a tool for obtaining food. Engraving became less important, and function became tantamount. Joseph Swope eventually left the colony of Pennsylvania and headed down the well-used wagon road into the great interior valley of the Virginia colony, a much different place than he had experienced in Pennsylvania. Whereas Pennsylvania had a somewhat peaceful relationship with the Native Americans on its western end and was fairly scarcely populated, Virginia seemed to be in a perpetual state of perceived war. Combining a frontier which pierced far inland into a colony with far greater population than that of Virginia, or, or that of Pennsylvania, rather. Relations with Indians in Virginia were much worse. They had been much better in Pennsylvania, where it was not uncommon at all for German immigrant gunsmiths to stock and repair guns for friendly Indians, including even the Shawnee. This would never happen in Virginia, whose frontier hunters were called the Long Knives by the Shawnee and both sides were liable to kill the other on site in the dangerous middle ground between their settlements. It's estimated that as of 1750, even though Philadelphia was America's largest city, it would be, and it would be for some decades to come, Virginia had a population of around 231,000 people, while Pennsylvania at that time had a population of only around 120,000. The next decade would further increase that difference, in 1760, ten years later, Virginia's population was now estimated at 340,000, while Pennsylvania only a moderate increase to 183,000. So the Virginia frontier was legendary already for its danger, but widely known as, a full, as being full of opportunity for the enterprising woodsmen or frontiersmen, and they were flooding in, including Joseph. Joseph carried in with him into Virginia a rifle of his own design. Though not personally made by him, it had a smooth barrel so that he could fire solid shot or um, bird shot, basically, depending on what he was hunting. But it had all the other attributes of the old world Jaeger rifles he grew up with, albeit lacking the fabulous decorations and having a somewhat longer barrel. Stocked in a stunning American black walnut wood, it had a large, thick, almost clunky buttstock with a sliding wooden patch box. It had sparse but well-executed relief carving with a teardrop design prominently decorating the lock. It also featured a simple and traditional C-scroll carved just behind the plain cheek rest of the stock. It actually wasn't all that different looking at first glance than a fairly plain Jaeger rifle from the old country but it utilized a much different barrel. This barrel Joseph himself had obtained in trade six months prior to his departure for Virginia for two worn-out old muskets. 
stalked by a good friend of his who fortunately spoke the same dysfunctional German English as Joseph. What really made this rifle special and ideally suited to where he was going, where he knew he was going, was that the lengthened and smoothbore barrel, um, which itself was made based on a very old design, which had been perfected by the Spanish really early in the 18th century. And it was well known to many of the German blacksmiths. It was characterized by having an octagon shape in the thick rear of it, back by the breech, where it screws into the stock. Then there's a dramatic transition from an octagon to a round barrel, about halfway down the barrel, where there's a decorative ring, much like what would be seen on the famous long fowling pieces used for bird hunting in, um, by the Dutch and in the Hudson Valley of New York. This made sense for the transition which was occurring in Pennsylvania and Virginia to a longer-barreled gun in the American colonies. This perfectly balanced weapon in Joseph's hands had both a rear sight and a front sight post for accurate aiming. He also specifically had ordered it to be completed with a sling attached to small swivels on the stock so that he could drape the rifle across his back when necessary during travel. The lock itself was of traditional German flintlock style, much smaller and flatter than the large British locks of the era. It was handmade by an expert German locksmith whom he did not personally know. But the rest of the hardware on the gun, the butt plate, the trigger guard, the side plate, the ramrod pipes, they were all expertly made of brass. Though they lacked engraving, they had graceful lines, were sturdy, and well-suited to the balance of the gun, into which Joseph had placed much forethought. After arriving at his destination, Joseph built a small cabin, temporary in his eyes, in what was then, and still is, Augusta County, Virginia, near present-day Staunton, Virginia, in a place now aptly named Swope's Depot. Joseph's first son, Joseph, of course, was born there on August 11, 1751, and there the rest of the Swope family stayed while Joseph Sr. went hunting. Life was not free. Men like Joseph either had to farm or hunt. Joseph wasn't the farming type. He loved to hunt, and as he frequently attempted to explain to his wife, when she inevitably began her routine attempts at convincing him to change his ways, there was more money in it, potentially at least. The cabin itself had a dirt floor and was set on stones on the four corners. It had one small window on the rear wall, and of course the thick wooden front door with wooden hinges that Joseph carved with his small belt axe which would usually be open to allow light inside during the day. It's only a closing mechanism. Its only closing mechanism was the hand-whittled bar lock on the inside with a thick oak plank which barred the inward opening door from opening, at least not without a hell of an effort from the outside. The small fireplace opening was covered with mud and some stone on the outside and leading to a chimney made of green wood and then again lined with mud. It was temporary, and in fact he built the entire house in three days with help from his neighbor, with nothing really but two axes and an inch and a half hand auger, which had been given to him by his father. He wouldn't be doing this again. Hewing logs, even crudely done, was getting difficult at his age. At least they had been able to use his horse to help pull the heavy white oak logs. Next time it would be done right, and it, wouldn't, it, it would be permanent with real planks on the floor, and maybe he wouldn't use white oak again because the weight nearly broke his back by the third day. In this manner, much to the chagrin of his wife, Joseph would leave for months at a time on hunting expeditions. Such was the life of the long hunter, as evidenced by the life story of Daniel Boone, with his love, Rebecca Bryan, always longing for him, and then some, according to some historians. But though potentially satisfying and profitable, it was difficult and dangerous work. The Swope cabin in Augusta was at the very fringe of the frontier, and there was basically no settlers beyond that point. Short of temporary hunting cabins, thrown up for seasonal or temporary use, with only a couple of isolated exceptions, it really was on the fringe. Joseph had never quite learned the art of properly constructing a fireplace, though, and the small Swope cabin filled with smoke incessantly, causing his wife to curse him constantly, though mostly while he was gone. She did love him, though, and would stay up many nights with her mind racing, wonder if he was alive or dead. 
In Joseph's eyes and in the minds of many like him, the furs and the skins were profit, just waiting there for the taking. However, it wasn't going to be easy or else everyone would be doing it. Beyond being hard work, there were constantly competitors on the move in the dangerous hunting grounds, namely the Shawnee, who mostly resided on Pennsylvania's frontier during this particular time period, but who frequently hunted, much like the Virginia long hunters, down through the Virginia frontier every year. They had trails running down from Pennsylvania into the Virginia mountains and also running in from the Ohio River, where many large native hunting parties crossed over into Virginia from the villages in Ohio. It was on one of these hunting expeditions in which Joseph rambled into the greater Greenbrier Valley for the first time. He was trapping and hunting up the Jackson River country, west of, or of western Virginia, now Bath and Allegheny counties. He had spent much of the summer of 1750, two years earlier, in that same valley, working and living with another long hunter, an affable and enterprising man named William Jackson. Both men enjoyed trapping along this beautiful, small, fast-flowing river, rich with game and fur. The area was beautiful. A few miles up the valley, on the tributaries coming out of the eastern mountain ridges, were hot springs, suitable for bathing, even when cold outside, and nearby was a large waterfall, which threw this highly mineralized water into the sky in a dramatic sheet of water. The rocks surrounding the large waterfall and the springs several miles above them were like nothing Joseph had ever seen, full of tiny holes and easily crumbled under your feet or even in your hand. It was as if the rock itself was alive and growing continuously. Indeed, bathing in the warm mineral spring water eased Joseph's joints in his strong but tired body. After years of trekking through the woods, sometimes every bone in Joseph's body would ache, and he could feel every little bone in his feet and his hands, which felt brittle and painful. And then he got his headaches from an old tooth which he had been forced to pull from his jaw all by himself, which was probably the worst pain he had ever felt in his life. The hot spring water, though, surrounded by the porous rocks, really helped, he believed anyways. And in any event, it was a rare luxury in the life of a frontiersman to be able to bathe in hot water. Joseph and William spent many a night, and sometimes days, especially when raining, drinking whiskey and singing old songs while encamped in a cave near the bank of that river. The cave, which Jackson had first found, allowed the men to keep, keep warm and relatively invisible, um, having a fire. There were obvious signs of long use by Indians, or even their predecessors. The benefit of being in a decently sized cave didn't guarantee their safety from Indians passing through the area, but it sure helped. Unless, of course, the Indians were headed to the same cave, which obviously they must have known about. Spending weeks on end in the wilderness tended to give the extended long hunter the feeling that they were alone in the world in an almost entirely different universe where nobody else existed. Of course, that was a false sense of security, since a complacent hunter could, in reality, be ambushed at any moment, either by whites or Indians. But neither Jackson nor Swope were ambushed that summer. They fortunately had no problems with Indians whatsoever, and they ended up doing fairly well financially once their furs and hides were brought back to Stanton. The only meat the men kept was the bear meat, and the grease rendered from it, which was easily preserved and highly valued among the frontier settlers. To the person any of the frontier settlers Joseph had ever met would, without exception, buy bear meat over any other wild game. The fat content was a necessary part of the frontier diet, as the early settlers had learned. And in contrast, they found it sorely lacking in venison and turkey. Pigs were kept where possible in settlements, but they were also expensive and would not be butchered when wild game was available. Over sometimes drunken meals of bear and whiskey, and sometimes even rum, at least in the beginning of the trip, when it was still available, Joseph would become good friends with William. Jackson himself loved the little valley so much that he had decided to settle and build a cabin there, and Joseph didn't blame him a bit. When he returned to hunt two years later in 1752, Joseph stopped to see Jackson and stay for a while in his new cabin there. Though not quite jealous, the thought did cross his mind that he needed his own little slice of frontier heaven, as William now clearly enjoyed. To think that in the old country, as people were still clinging to their small farms, which they had been farming for hundreds of years, 
never really getting ahead, and now here was Joseph in a paradise just there for the taking. There was so much new land that Joseph didn't even need to farm it, just hunt and maybe plant some small crops for personal use, just enough to qualify as a settler on the land. Later, such lands would be properly surveyed and a handwritten deed drafted in beautiful cursive handwriting by an expert hand, noting that the land described therein was conveyed to the owner by virtue of settlement. Though not ideal, it was mostly effective, assuming a competent surveyor performed the survey. Virginia was fairly competent in that respect. Later, in the rush to claim land in Kentucky, it would be a disaster of conflicting titles, claims and boundaries, spelling financial disaster to many of the great surveyors and frontiersmen, such as Daniel Boone, Simon Kenton, and George Rogers Clark, but resulted really in wealth and prestige for others who were more careful, such as Daniel Smith and Isaac Shelby. Joseph's friend William Jackson had obtained a grant of land around the beautiful, fast-flowing Small Mountain River, which still today is named after him, Jackson's River, and by the time of Swope's 1752 hunting trip, Jackson had already built a crude but comfortable log cabin along it, situated on a small rise of bottomland. Jackson's cabin was mostly used as a base of operations for hunting and trapping, but also to begin the task of clearing some of the more fertile plots of land for planting. Swope immensely enjoyed staying there with Jackson at his new cabin in this wild and free country. There were no neighbors nearer than the Calf Pasture River settlements, where for years the legendary old Captain Alexander Dunlap had lived in a large cabin with his family. For many years, the old Captain Dunlap had lived in a tall, fortified log cabin there on the Calf Pasture River, which had its own stockade and large gate. It had been the westernmost stopping-off point for the more adventurous Virginia long hunters and explorers, as well as a place of welcome for their return if they did. One of those men, John Lewis, had his own large fortified plantation of sorts not far from the Swope cabin in Stanton, Virginia. Lewis was also an explorer, or rather a surveyor, and of course a hunter and a frontiersman by necessity. But he was very much in a higher social strata than the lowly Joseph Swope, having come from an influential family in Scotland. But he was very much a humble and down-to-earth man with a very well-adjusted family who adored and revered their patriarch. Joseph enjoyed staying at William's isolated cabin, and he was certainly welcome to stay, as William had repeatedly told him. But eventually Joseph's obsessive pacing resumed, even inside Jackson's small cabin on dark and stormy days, as well as many of the nights, much to the annoyance of Jackson, who constantly told him, less walking and more drinking. It was inevitable, however, that Joseph's wanderlust, which was hardwired into his DNA, continued to encourage him to get back on the move, to go even further west and to explore, hunt, and maybe even find his own isolated frontier headquarters, surrounded by game and fresh mountain streams. John Lewis, as well as his son Andrew, who often accompanied his father on his explorations, had told Joseph of their explorations and surveying down the old Indian trail beyond the Jackson River, about a large stream which was a tributary of the Jackson, named after the old Captain Dunlap, Dunlap's Creek. There was valuable land for the taking down down there, and they were headed there as well, they told him, as part of a new land venture. It was dangerous territory, they told him, which he of course knew. It goes without saying that if he ran into trouble there, nobody was coming to their help. But then again, that was nothing new in his line of work. From Jackson's cabin on the Jackson River, Swope found the confluence of Dunlap's Creek, named after old Captain Dunlap, who had told the story many, many times of his dramatic and dangerous exploration in that country. Dunlap Creek flowed into Jackson's River at a beautiful set of curves, which over the years had created a wide bottomland on either side of the river, now present-day Covington, Virginia. Joseph then began up that creek, which was almost as large at its mouth as the river itself into which it emptied. As was described to him, there was what appeared to be an old trail heading up the bank of Dunlap Creek. It wasn't a road, but rather a footpath and perhaps even an animal path at times. The path itself was well-worn and mostly clear of brush. 
Though a footpath, it was wide enough mostly to lead a pack horse, though at times there were narrow spots, spots which were tricky for both man and horse. Both the Indians and the Virginia hunters were required to use pack horses to get their bounty out of the wilderness. None of the streams through these rugged mountain areas were navigable to the point of being able to transport these heavy furs and hides using canoes or larger boats. It was generally only by horse or by man. After what must have seemed like ten miles or so, Joseph came to another creek and a faint small trail leading off in that direction, which had been just as described to him by John and Andrew Lewis, who themselves had already surveyed some of the land up that way and may at that very moment have been up that way as far as Joseph knew. Every once in a while he had noticed paint markings on some of the trees and in one place he saw the letters J and L marked on a tree with coal, which he presumed was done by the Lewises. Joseph decided to continue down Dunlap's Creek rather than turning towards the direction of the Lewises' travels. He wasn't a wealthy man, he had no land grant, he had no deed, and he wasn't in a position to purchase the land that the Lewises were surveying. But if he found the right place, he knew he could claim land for himself by right of possession. The process had been explained to him probably a hundred times or so in taverns across the Virginia settlements, usually after one too many cups of rum, and sometimes which was literally acted out inside the tavern, resulting in one or more tomahawks or poleaxes sticking out of the various ceiling joists and fireplace mantles of the tavern. He would first establish a tomahawk claim by marking his boundary or marking his initials in the boundary trees for the property and he'd quickly then need to build a log cabin there and establish himself on that land as, as, as quickly as possible, in which case he would eventually be able to register his own deed and survey for that plot of land by right of settlement, if, of course, he found a spot he was willing to stay, if he found a spot he found comparable to Jackson's spot. As Joseph continued down the Indian Trail along Dunlap Creek, he thought about potential troubles ahead. He knew that no Indian tribes inhabited these parts he was entering at that time, but that they were often occupied by seasonal hunting parties via several well-known trails through the mountains, one of which Joseph was currently following. He knew this was risky and was determined at some point to get off of the trail and to make his own way as he was adept at doing. But for now, he continued down the wide, stone-bottomed creek, flanked on either side by massive mountain ridges, allowing very little sun at most times of the day. After about another five miles, he came to an amazing spot and found just one of the things he had been searching for, a tremendous amount of beaver sign. Here, Dunlap Creek branched into two tributaries on either side, both going into different valleys. The northernmost creek headed into a narrow cove, which didn't appear to widen out much, if at all, as it entered from the west. The southern creek, obviously the larger of the two, roared into the confluence point over a massive and wide waterfall, which very much reminded Joseph of the large one he used to visit with Jackson back near the hot springs. The water seemed to be the same mineral content, and the porous rock once again appeared. It wasn't in the other tributary headed into the cove, but it completely filled the other creek, which itself was like nothing he had seen since leaving Pennsylvania. There were a series of two other waterfalls above the main large one at the confluence. Along those two waterfalls were what appeared to be generations of beaver activity, to the point that there were hardened, almost rock-like, petrified trees and beaver dams, creating a large swampy marsh with beaver pools in places. It seemed to be a beaver paradise, and with that, he would always remember the place as Beaver Dam Falls. And that's present-day Beaver Dam Falls in Allegheny County, Virginia. The Indian Trail followed the Southern Creek with the waterfalls bounding around the beaver marshes to the south, along the base of the ridge overlooking the area. So, of course, Joseph continued to follow that creek, as he would have anyways, even if the trail didn't go in that direction since this was clearly the better, better choice of the two. He could already see where the little valley was starting to rise and widen out. In addition to the beaver, there was deer sign and bear sign everywhere. Every little sapling, it seemed, was rubbed completely raw by the bucks, with some appearing fresh and others obviously from prior seasons. 
There were bear droppings everywhere filled with berries. At the head of the beaver marsh was a large cave over which the Indian trail passed. Out of this cave a strong smell of sulfur emanated, along with a milky white colored spring water. The animals apparently loved this spot, as there was sign everywhere. Joseph sat up behind a deadfall pine for about 45 minutes before he saw a flash of black. Though he heard nothing, but he saw a large bear waddle out in front of him near the entrance of the cave. He took a shot as he had done many times before. He killed the bear with one well-placed round to the skull. Joseph decided to camp in a nearby rock overhang, full of the same porous rock as surrounded the waterfalls. It was as if the entire area had once been the bed of an ancient ocean, and it left these little overhangs seemingly jutting out of the ground at random. He spent much of that night listening to the sounds of wolves making a racket, much of the night, seemingly only feet away. Despite the pitch blackness, which resulted in following his fire dying out down to the embers. He could sense them, the wolves, though he couldn't see his hand even in front of his face. They were yipping and yelping and carrying on all around him, as if they were playing with each other. Strangely, he sensed no threat from them and was calm, so he didn't get scared per se, but it was somewhat unnerving and kept him from getting much sleep that night. He slept with his hand on his long rifleman's knife, the rest of the night, just in case, just in case he had to fight for his life against wolves. But he didn't bother, or they didn't bother him, rather, that night, other than, of course, making noise and keeping him awake. The next day, Joseph woke up, and he continued up the old Indian trail, which skirted the Beaver Marsh area on its southern edge, at the base of the first ridge of mountains just to the south of it. Probably not another mile away after that, he rounded a bend in the trail, skirting which what was now a much smaller creek, and the land then opened up dramatically, with some old meadows on both sides of the small creek, with a random cornstalk dotted here and there, in between the weeds, brush, and chest-high grass. Joseph continued, heading up the valley, passing another small waterfall, and some of the largest springs he'd ever seen, still with the small, porous rock in the bed of the creek. The creek itself dwindled beyond that point, and the valley continued upwards from the headwaters of Dunlap Creek until he rounded the top of a hill where new springs began to form, though he was still in the same valley. This is the present-day Eastern Continental Divide, um, in Gap Mills, Monroe County, West Virginia. There's a historical marker there uh, now. Uh, the water on one side flows to the James River and out to the Atlantic, and on the other side it flows all the way to the Ohio and out to the Gulf of Mexico. On both sides of this valley, it was probably a mile wide. Two large mountain ridges enclosed it, as if guarding it from whatever dangers lay beyond. The creek itself, which bubbled up from a few springs here and there, was small, too small to hold any number of the fur-bearing creatures that Joseph was seeking. And there were no spots, as he had seen the day before, where there was a large amount of beaver activity. Thus he continued, for about another 15 miles or so down this beautiful valley, until he reached a gap in the mountains, through which the creek, as well as in the Indian Trail itself, followed. And this is present-day Gap Mills, Monroe County, West Virginia. Joseph traveled through this gap without incident, with the creek now increasing in velocity and depth as it flowed through this gap, which is the reason why it later became Gap Mills, because it was great for any number of mills to set up in this area in later years. On the other side of this gap, Gap Mills, the lay of the country took quickly a dramatic turn from a linear valley of mountain ridges into a large plateau of hilly woodland with old fields interspersed here and there. It was a land of sinks, with no real creek flowing through per se, but with small springs and creeks here and there flowing down into caves not to be seen again, at least from that site. The creek he had been following took a turn to the north, but the Indian trail itself went left over land, over the sinks. So he followed this trail, 
It wound down past a few sinks, continued itself, till finding the headwaters of a small creek, flowing clear cold water off a small mountain, serving as a foothill for the large grandmother of the mountain guarding the greater valley itself, which lie just behind it. That would be present-day Little Mountain, a foothill, essentially, for the large mountain right behind it, Peter's Mountain. Indeed, Joseph had walked over half a mile through a small, this small creek running parallel to this old Indian trail, before hopping off on a couple of rocks at the spot where the creek suddenly changed. It hit a steep hill and turned due south for several hundred yards and went into a gorge some, uh, somewhat. There, Joseph scrambled up this tall, dark, densely forested hill, trying as much as possible to avoid breaking any sticks or undergrowth, and to step on as many stones as possible, rather than to leave footprints. The purpose of this was to conceal his path, as well as the direction of his travel, a necessity on the frontier. A traceable path would likely be a death sentence if noticed by a traveling party of Shawnee. He had no indication that Indians were nearby, but then again he necessarily wouldn't, per se, if they were coming from the opposite direction. Had he left a moccasin print in the dirt or in the mud, it might be visible until the next rain. And it was the dry season right now, with no rain in sight, already the creeks were fairly low. This is the site of the present-day Burnside's Fort or Willowbrook Plantation which is almost exactly one mile south of present-day Union, West Virginia, and directly in front of what we call our fort, because we own it now, Burnside's Fort was directly on this old Indian trail. And Joseph Swope got off the Indian trail, we know, or we believe, um, just west of Union, uh, or southwest of Union, so this is a natural spot for him to have climbed up out of that creek. From the top of the hill, which would be right, right around our gate, our driveway and at the fort, Joseph headed due west, and he made his way across a series of limestone-soiled tablelands full of sinkholes and rich with water sources, but there were no large creeks in the vicinity, and thus probably no close sources of the valuable fur hides he was seeking to return with. So he continued, but he did notice that the land was highly fertile here, due to the limestone content. Joseph, and indeed many of the frontiersmen, judged themselves highly adept at placing almost a fertility rating on new lands that they were passing through or exploring. Merely by observing the species and the traits of the trees growing on it, they would give it a rating, and they often would mention these things in their journals. Joseph, had he been looking to farm, he may have stopped here already and claimed some of the land, especially since much of it was already cleared meadows, some of which grew thick, chest-high grass waving like a grain field in the breeze. But this was too exposed of a spot so close to that trail, even if he had wanted to become a farmer, and so he decided to climb a mountain that he saw in the distance, which appeared to him to be the highest mountain in that vicinity, so that he could get a better lay of the land, or at least find out what was on the other side of it, which is what explorers generally do. Joseph climbed this mountain, which would later be named after him, Swope's Knobs, which contained one large hill jutting out out of the top of a wide and long plateau of a mountain. As he neared the top, the land became more rocky, and the foliage indicated that it had less fertile soil, in his opinion, probably because it was lacking the limestone content as you had in the sinks below and became more of a shale content in the soil. But it was thick, thickly forested, and he was unable to really see out of the foliage once he got up on top of this mountain. Maybe in a couple more months it would have been possible with the leaves falling off the trees. Joseph chuckled to himself, and being on the tip-top of the mountain, he smiled to himself as he remembered his neighbor back home, Michael Bickett. One time he had to help that guy. He was stranded at the very top of a mountain. He had to rescue him from a pack of wolves, which, which had him up a tree, on the very top of this mountain of all places. And it would remain a running joke between the two of them, often, often involving a roaring fire and drinks of rum, 
He then decided that then he'd name that little mountain knob after his buddy Michael so that he could tell Michael about it and they'd have a good laugh when he returned. And as it turned out, he did tell his friend Michael about this area and got him to move there. And to this day, that very knob on top of Swope's knobs is called Bickett's Knob. Joseph continued on over to the back side of the mountain, where in the distance he could see more light passing through the trees, indicating an opening or a meadow down on the other side of the mountain. The short and muscular frontiersman hadn't shaved in several days, and his cloth hunting shirt was nearly black with sweat and grease stains. Though fall was nearing, it was still sweltering hot. Fortunately, despite the heat, there seemed to be no mosquitoes, and a consistent breeze from the north, much to Joseph's liking. Walking in deer-hide homemade moccasins, he was well used to walking quietly through the woods, and had just now killed a turkey, a hen, trampling through the woods with twenty or thirty other hens, scratching at last year's leaves on the ground looking for grubs, for insects. The large flock of turkeys had made so much noise coming through the woods that Joseph heard them coming quite a ways away, and was able to set up a blind using a fallen tree and ambush them. As the turkey flock loudly neared his position, Joseph fired his already loaded round ball that he had directly through the eye of the closest turkey, killing it instantly and tearing away half of its bald, ugly head. The rest of the flock scattered in almost deafening clatter they made so so much noise, with many of them taking the flight It would generally be better to use a load of shot when turkey hunting. But his, quote, smooth rifle was already loaded with a solid round ball by default, since his primary quarry is always humans, at least if rendered necessary in self-defense. You don't want to get in a gunfight with basically birdshot loaded in your weapon. You want to have that big round ball that's going to do the job if necessary. His primary purpose was scouting, hunting, and exploring. But he always had to be prepared to act in self-defense. Stepping out of the thick and shady foliage, coming down the backside of the big knobby mountain, Joseph was overwhelmed by the breathtaking view of a small, lush, hidden valley. The most beautiful he had ever laid his eyes on. This had to be his spot. Not too big, not too small and somewhat hidden away off the track of any Indian trail that he knew of. Joseph, we know, was standing on the backside of the mountains now named after him, Swope's Knob, and he was looking down into the modern or present-day Wolf Creek Valley of Monroe County, now West Virginia. And if you haven't seen this view, it's a view I've taken photos of many times, and it's up on our website. It's Geology. Dot com and the article um, of the same name as this podcast. As he stepped out of the dense forest and into the overgrown savanna, what appeared to be old fields possibly used by the Native Americans in the past, many possibly for many generations, but very much overgrown, out of out of use. But it was beautiful. He got one of those sixth sense type of feelings at the same time. With the beauty came this anxiety. It was as if he was being watched or being followed. As many of us have felt before, the hair on the back of his neck began to stick up. He reprimed the pan of his flintlock with a little dab of powder. Not too much, not too little. He had perfected this over the years. He didn't need to measure. He knew exactly how much powder to use. Too much, and there would be too large of an explosion in the, in the pan, in the flint lock itself. And it would cause just a minute delay, enough that it might throw off his accuracy a little bit. If he put too, mu- too little powder in the pan he might have a failure to discharge the main load, or as we know it today, a flash in the pan. And that might mean death in a confrontation or ambush. 
Slowly, Joseph began to descend the rocky ridge of a foothill he had been traversing, towards the obvious creek which ran down below. As he walked, his eyes darted back and forth, looking for anything out of place. Once down at the creek, it would be much easier to avoid leaving the trail, but for now he was exposed and vulnerable. In the distance, slightly off to the left, he heard the telltale sound of a doe's bleat, which sounded almost like a loud, explosive sneeze. Something like, She bleated twice, loudly, warning other deer of potential danger. A sudden noise had startled Joseph. But the deer, she wasn't close enough for him to see her, and that concerned him. And that's the end of part one. Stay tuned for part two, and that's where it really gets good. Thank you for joining our podcast of part one of the venturesome Virginian, Joseph Swope. And you can also read the written version of, of this story on our website. It's scavengeology.com. Go to the blog section. And you'll find it um, in order, anyways, though we've been posting other things. Um, Appreciate you listening. Uh, Stay tuned. I look forward to finishing part two of of this story. And this is kind of an historical narrative type uh, writing that I've been working on. So it's based on a real true story. But it's such an early true story that we have very few details. So I'm taking the liberty, obviously, of filling in some of the details in between and trying to you know, make a story out of it. So I appreciate you listening. And again, check out the written version on the blog and you'll see all the pictures of all these spots. And uh, sign up for um, the email notifications of these posts and um, get them in your email. And you can do that on the site again at scavengeology.com. Thank you.